It's actually a really good rendition there, Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) That should be the opening. (laughs) Okay. I like to sing. I just can't. (laughs) That should be the opening. Okay, Okay. fair. I'll take it into consideration. (laughs) Do that. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of Medlib's Miscellany. I'm Tracy Shields. And I'm Carrie Price. Today we're going to answer your burning questions from Twitter and Blue Sky. And we mentioned previously on um, past episodes that we were going to take questions you asked of us and answer them. So, I don't know where Carrie just went to. Hi, Carrie. Where'd you go to? (laughs) I forgot we asked on Instagram, too, so I should probably check Instagram. We thought it would be fun to do, and a couple of you had questions for us. The first one comes from Twitter user Carly Clares. They say, boring question, what's your favorite framework? Is it Pico? Is it PCC? Or is it something else? Tracy, (laughs) do you have a favorite framework? I do, kind of. Kind of? See, yeah. I I would just default and say if I, I guess I don't really have a favorite except Pico, just because that's the one I'm most familiar with. Although I would say Peacots, right? I would add the T and the S. Yeah, that's the one everybody learns and it's the one all the nurses use. So it's really the most common one. Mm-hmm. My favorite is Cocoa Pop. It's uh, from JBI, and it's used for their incidence prevalence reviews. So it's, it's condition, context, population, Cocoa Pop. And it's just fun to say. I like the name Spider, and I like Behemoth. Oh, I didn't even know Behemoth. Behemoth is some, um, I've never used it. I've only encountered it in like the typology of reviews stuff and it's for i think theoretical frameworks or something like that i don't Mm -hmm. i don't remember exactly i'll have to look that one up and put it in the notes because i don't remember it off the top of my head see that's the thing i don't i don't have these memorized do you have it memorized like the different frameworks some of them yeah some of them yeah like peo and behemoth is fun behavior of interest health context exclusions and models or theories. Mm-hmm. Looks like it's from Booth and Carroll, 2015. Systematic searching for theory to inform systematic reviews. Well, Booth really likes acronyms and initialisms. Didn't Booth do spider? <laughs> I wonder if our listeners have a, a framework, a favorite framework. Maybe they can leave us a comment. That'd be good. And not only tell us about their favorite fa- framework, but their favorite guide of frameworks because there's some really good library guides out there so if you have a favorite framework that's hard to say it's a bit of a tongue twister then tell us about it and link to link to it Mm -hmm. we're curious okay so yours is pico and mine's count chocula's (laughs) cocoa pop 
Do they still make Count Chocula? They have to. What's a world without Count Chocula? A very sad place. Because I don't, I don't know that I remember seeing, not that I've looked for Count Chocula, but like, um, there was Count Chocula and Booberry. Wasn't there a third one? A Fruity Pebbles. Strawberry. Regenics. Cereal Kids. Yeah. <gasps> Back when cereals were mostly sugar and Saturday morning cartoons had zero educational value whatsoever. <gasps> Actually, I have a story about Fruity Pebbles. I was getting these headaches as a kid, and my mom took me to the doctor, and they were like, keep a log of what you eat so that we know what's causing it. <laughs> it was the Fruity Pebbles. Was it because of the sugar, or was it because of some dye or something in it? Who knows? Yeah, it could have been anything. I was just a little kid, but I always laugh because those were my favorite. They were so crunchy, so colorful. Well, that's our first question. We're kicking it off with style. <laughs> you ask about our favorite framework. You get a treatise on Gen X cereals. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life. Mikey likes it. Um, <laughs> We're going to have to look. I'm going to have to look up these commercials and share it with people. So people, because, yeah. Do like people even remember Mikey likes it? He likes it. He likes it. Anyway, I thought everybody knows that one. I think you have to be at a certain age to remember some of these things. Stop. I know. I was just watching a webinar, and it was a somebody talking about headaches and migraines in particular, and he was having to explain what static looked like because he's like the the audience is young enough they've never seen a static TV. <laughs> phones and connected to the wall yeah that was another thing he mentioned actually he's like back when phones were connected to the walls like, oh yeah anyway sorry you can take that out no it's funny so the next question came from beatrice and it was really directed to me but i didn't have a great answer so i decided to put it in this ask us anything episode but also, I should probably tell Beatrice that I'm doing that. So sorry, Beatrice, if you're listening. Um, Beatrice asked about gray literature. And they asked how to uh, advise researchers to document the search query for their gray lit. Because one of the things I say over and over again is I don't do the gray lit searching for the research team unless it's formally searchable and exportable. Otherwise, they're screening at the time that they are looking. So I don't have a great answer, which is why I decided to throw it in here and make Tracy answer it. How do you advise your research teams to document their gray lit when they're doing it without you? Or when they're doing it with you, how do you handle all that? So I don't know. I don't know if it's because I'm a bit of a control freak, but I would be really hesitant to tell my my team to do their own gray lit search. Well, do you search all these websites for your users, even if they're not exportable? I have in the past, yes. And are you screening at the same time? And folks, we're talking about systematic reviews here, basically comprehensive lit reviews. So, so in some ways, I guess I am screening, but usually they're looking for things that are specific enough that it, it doesn't require screening for example if they're looking for 
things from a particular conference or a series of um, professional organizations, I will ask them, okay, what, um, what year should be covered? And, you know, sometimes they'll do it if it's something that's only a member access and I don't have access to it. But if it's, if it's available, mm-hmm. you know, I will do the searches based on the topic. And again, those searches are usually pretty basic because they're not going to mm-hmm. be getting a whole lot of hits in the first place. Right, right. Or I'm searching things like FDA documentation, like the regulatory documents or things like that. And so uh-huh. in that case, I would do that for them. I wouldn't say go to these different regulatory agencies and find some because they, they don't know how to find things there. I mean, I sometimes mm-hmm. can barely find things there. So, Do you import it into EndNote and include it in the results? I have not. Or, or whatever. I have done that a few times, but more often than not, what I will do is give them a packet of things with documentation. I like I will, like in a table or something, document or some type of format. I will have, you know, what I searched, where I searched, and, you know, a... a the results that I got a link, you know, links to results that I came across that are specific to what they want. So for like the FDA things, it might be the, the scientific report, the pharmacologic report, um, review or that sort of thing. And, you know, sometimes it's links to the document, but more often than not, I will download the PDFs and give them to them. Because that way they have it, but also in case it disappears by the time things are done. Hmm. Because that's one of the things yep. about great literature is that sometimes can links get broken. So, you know, I take screenshots, I download things. You have me rethinking my professional life. Oh, no. And like, <laughs> like with like clinical trials registries and things like that a lot of times you can just you can export them yeah i do search trials i search registries i've even started to search things like uh the lens and dimensions to try to get some gray lit because the lens will include websites sometimes so i do try to include gray literature but i include it in the context of the formal literature search i document it like i would document the search Mm mm-hmm but this is really interesting, and I could see how that would be a huge value add to your teams. The The ones that I've done the most gray-lit searches for have been usually drug-related in some ways. So that's why I would not have them do it. They can tell me, like I said, where to, what they're looking for or if they're specific meetings or things like that that they want me to look for but again a lot of times you know it's a simple search but it's really difficult to find things and so I guess Mm -hmm. to some degree I kind of am doing a little bit of screening but not not screening for content just screening for relevancy Mm -hmm. which I see you know that's I I don't consider it the same thing and when they write up the prisma flow diagram is it considered other sources Mm -hmm. okay 
Well, that makes sense. But I also um, will say that for the most part, when I've done this, most recently when I've done Grace Graylit searches, it's not been for systematic reviews. It's usually been for scoping reviews. So it's a little bit different. Makes more sense. Because they would actively want things that are like white papers or policy papers or things like that. Mm -hmm. One of the things I get asked about a lot when I'm teaching is, and especially from non-librarians too, is how to handle the gray lit. And I say, you've got to have a plan. It's in your protocol, right? <laughs> if they have a protocol. But really, this, these are the kinds of things that should be planned ahead by the team. And they should know where they want to look, an organization or an association. And then they may ask for help. And I guess that's something I could make more clear is, hey, I can help you with this. I would keep it in the search documentation along with everything else. Now, Beatrice points to a site from CADTH called Gray Matters. And it's supposed to let you search things, but I could not get it to work. It says... I think they've updated the URL. It's graymatters.cadth.ca. A free online resource, a free online tool for finding health-related gray literature that are not published commercially and which may be inaccessible via bibliographic databases. But then when I try to search anything at all, I don't get any results. So I don't know if that's just me. Oh, and it's really specific to Canada. Because it's C-A-D-T-H. How do you say that? Cat. Cadeth. Cadeth. Oh. I like cats. I'm sorry, I don't have a great answer. There's a lot of places. See, well, we could probably have a whole episode on Greylit if you get me started. We could, and I wanted to mention, I took, I, I had the great honor of taking the Evidence Synthesis Institute course from the University of Minnesota last year, or early this year, and they had a whole module on Greylit, and they did such a good job with it. Um, I think they have a press book, which is an open access book. And if I can find the chapter they have on gray literature, we'll put it in the show notes because it was really, really good. I'm not the greatest gray lit person. You know, I include it when it comes from Scopus and Embase and whatever. And see, I I absolutely love searching gray lit and we'll get completely lost in the weeds with that. Because there's a lot with drug information and government documents and regulatory things. I mean, I never really thought about it, but I guess I do screening for them, but because it is it it is to some degree curated by me, right? And a lot of librarians will use Publisher Parish to search Google. What? They use what? Publisher Parish. So with with this tool called Publisher Parish from HeartSync, you can search Google Scholar and export the first 2000 results. Oh. I've never used that. Let's leave that out I've, because I've never used it. <laughs> I tried it, but I didn't like I don't, it. I don't know what it is. I've, I've never used it. I didn't like it. I think it was user error, though, to be fair. It was user error. Me. I'm the problem. It's me. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> Sorry, well, I've been listening to a lot of T-Swift lately. <laughs> <laughs> I have not. I'm sorry. If if Allison, our friend, listens to this podcast, I know she loves T Swift. Yeah, I I did a significant amount of listening to 1989 when it was released a couple weeks ago. 
Okay. I have no comment. <laughs> I know. I don't even. I know she's. I know who she is. Okay. But that's about it. <laughs> oh, I'm not. I don't even consider myself a Swifty, but apparently, I guess I kind of am now. I think you I don't are. Know. Well, we'll let see. me ask you the next question, because it's a good one. And this comes from our friend, Laura. Hi, Laura. Are you ready for it? Hit me. Um, not not first of literally. All, first of all, she likes our podcast and says thanks. Yay. Then she asks if we happen to have a video. Oh, me. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> She's not asking me. <laughs> but the question is... What does it mean to search systematically? That's what she wanted to know. And for me to tackle a video on that, I mean, I have my own opinions, but... Okay, so what's your opinion? What does it mean to search systematically? Well, she asked you. You should answer first. Well... What does it mean to search systematically, Carrie? You have to have a good grasp of the topic. You have to translate the topic into a... And to reasonable concepts that are appropriate for the topic, you have to look at medical subject headings and M-tree headings if you have them, collect all synonyms, build it appropriately, combine them appropriately, and voila, it's systematic. I don't know. How about you? I think you're leaving out something that's a very important aspect to systematic or doing a search systematically. And that is documenting what you're doing as you're doing oh. it. Oh, I forgot. Because <laughs> how do you prove you did something systematically? Systematic. I mean, let's break that down. That means there's a system, right? So to do something systematic, systematically means that you have a system in place. What are you, the Oxford Dictionary? She asked us, what does it mean to search systematically? And this is how I think about it, so... <laughs> <laughs> if they're a little like it you need to have a system right and what is that system a big part of that system is that you've documented what you've done so you know what you did and you can explain that to some degree or at least somebody else could see it and hopefully follow what you did you're right even if I went with the- ideally they would be able to replicate it too right ideally to be, yeah I, you know ideally. they'd be able to reproduce what you did which i think goes along with being systematic so uh, as you were talking i had pulled up the oxford dictionary's um definition and you were saying exactly the same thing which is why i did that but it says done or acting according to a fixed plan or system methodical it's methodical so I was going for the sensitivity and the methodical part, but you're going for the right. documented, make it reproducible part. Right. Yeah. I mean, you need both, right? It's, it's different sides of the same coin. Yeah. Are there any good articles that talk about searching systematically that you know of? That's a good question. Not that I know of, but I've never gone looking, actually. I mean, I've just, I've just done it my way. <laughs> for, I have a system. I do it my way. That's systematic, right? Yeah. And that's that's part of the problem with all of this, right, is that there are systematic reviews, but you can also do a review that is done systematically. Right. Right. You can always search systematically. But it doesn't mean it's a systematic review because systematic review has a specific methodology. 
Right. There's things you do after the search that matter mm-hmm. that need to be done correctly, and that's that usually falls onto the responsibility of the team, and it's not always carried out. Right. But searching systematically, yeah. I mean, I do it for almost everything. I mean, I think to some degree you could say just if you do databases in a certain order, that's systematic. What order? Ooh, now that's a question. <laughs> um, what order do you... Actually, is that one of the questions we got? No, but... So, yeah, like what order do you do your searches if you have assuming you're doing whether it's systematic review or scoping or any kind of searching Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you do more than one database Mm -hmm. do you have a order you prefer to do them definitely okay what's your order well it's always pubmed first okay for people who work where I work, then I'm doing Medline on the EBSCO platform just because the results are easier to send. And so I'll, I'll search Medline. And if it's nursing people, then the next one is CINAHL. And if it's not nursing people or if it's a bit more broad in nature, then uh, I'll search Embase. And I didn't have access to Embase for a couple of years, and we finally purchased it. So now it's it's PubMed or Medline in combination with Embase. And then whatever else is appropriate for the topic. Now, another database I don't have anymore is the Cochrane Library, which really stinks. Well, I shouldn't say the platform, Cochrane Library, which holds systematic reviews, trials, and more. I can search it. I just can't export it. So, yeah, PubMed, Embase, and some others usually send all PsycInfo, Eric, uh, things like that. How about you? Okay, so for your basic kind of clinical question or research question, PubMed, Medline, Embase, if it touches on nursing or I think CINAHL would be appropriate, then I'll usually do CINAHL after Embase. Web of Science. Oh, I don't have it. Scopus after Web of Science. PsycInfo. Oh, Scopus is my third sometimes. And just kind of go down from there. The difference is if I'm doing something that is drug related, I usually start Mm -hmm. with Embase, but Mm, I will document that I started with PubMed because all my documents and templates usually have PubMed first. But if I'm actually more, yeah, so I'll still document them in that order, but I'll usually start by looking at Embase, just because it's a great way to mine for all the synonyms that I would use in the other databases. Oh, yeah. And I've been so screwed before if I go to build it in PubMed, and I'm like, it's ready to go. Let's keep going. Let's translate. And then I'm like, oh, no, Embase. Yeah. Like, I forgot to add all these. So, yeah, it's really good to use them in, in conjunction with each other if you can. Yeah. Or to start in one or the other. And I know some librarians start in Embase. Some librarians start in Avin Madeline. So it's, and I say in the classes I've taught, it's up to you. You get to decide. But my personal preference is probably PubMed mm-hmm. for most things. Let me take it a step further. When you put things into an EndNote library, do you do them in the same order that you search them? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I sure do. Yeah. So, you yep. too? Mm-hmm. 
And then I make little groups for each one so I can make sure that what imported is what I got. Mm -hmm. And then I used to deduplicate on import with some on some fields, but now I just deduplicate later. Or I don't deduplicate at all if they're using Covenants. Yay, Covenants! I'm not paid or sponsored by Covenants. <laughs> covenants dedupes for you, which is such a beautiful thing. And it's pretty good. So you never deduplicate if it's going into co- Covenants? Covenants? Not never. I mean, if they ask for it to be deduped, I'll dedupe it. But if they tell me they're using Covenants, and usually I've got a lot on my plate, then... I'll give them like one big file for MedNote and say Covenants will dedupe for you. Because not only that, then the t- Covenants is going to keep the Prisma flow diagram for them and it'll be a little bit cleaner. Covenants keeps the Prisma flow diagram. Well, that's true. And then if you do an update and you import more, it'll dedupe on that and you'll still have a nice clean flow diagram. So if it's available to us as a as a review team and covenants is being used which sometimes is cost and sometimes it doesn't it depends are you ready for the next question yeah do you want me to ask it or are you going to be asking all the questions since you've been asking you're new to maryland you should know this i don't need i have to i had to look up where's st mary's (laughs) county (laughs) what so it is the most remote part of Maryland, it is <laughs> Maryland. Sorry, can I put that in? The- <laughs> and the only thing down there besides the Potomac River, no, it's the Potomac River and the Chesapeake Bay. So crabs, but the only other thing down there is a cod. Are we really going to leave this in? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> well, so like, we didn't even ask the question. So oh, <laughs> so to preface all this, uh. Our our friend from Twitter asked us about the best restaurants in St. Mary's County, Maryland. And as a... I had to Google life, it because I didn't know where that was at. As a lifelong Marylander, I had to chuckle because I've only ever been there once in my life. It's very remote. It's where the mouth of the Potomac meets the bay. And I don't think there's a whole lot going on down there. So then I, I was like, well, let me help this guy out. Let me Google it. I'm sure he can Google it because he's a great librarian. And I Googled it, and all the reviews said, there's nothing here. <laughs> it said, there's no good restaurants here. <laughs> so I don't think we can help you with that one, John. It's <laughs> like, where is that? It's really far down. We'll put, it, we'll put an image in our show notes because I want to show you. It's the farthest south you can go on Maryland. Is it like Eastern West. Shore? side because we have the eastern shore no the eastern shore goes much further south into the ocean and on the delmarva peninsula but the but st mary's is below dc but like way below dc on the west side okay of maryland yeah i i went there for a college tour when i was like 18 and i was like no it's not happening (laughs) (laughs) what college is down there st mary's oh okay yeah, sorry, sorry to anybody who went to St. Mary's or likes St. Mary's. It's a Maryland state school. But I'm sure there's crabs, if you like crabs. Anything else to say about that one? <laughs> no, because I literally, I was like, where is that? I have no idea. Let me ask you the next ones. 
I don't know. I don't know places in Maryland. I know Moco and Hoco. What about Fico and Boco? Baco? No, that's not what they're called. Is it Baltimore County? Yeah. I'm kidding. Okay. We don't call it that. Oh my goodness. Balmer. We call it Balmer. Okay. Yeah. So the next two came to our Medlibs Miscellany Gmail. How exciting to get a message from a listener. We were just so tickled. We really were. <laughs> like, Carrie, Carrie, we got an email. <laughs> and I'm going to pose them to Tracy. Um, so the first one is, how do you account? This is, uh, this is from Heather. How do you account for misspellings when working on systematic reviews? I was surprised by how many results I got when I accidentally misspelled inoculation. I was even more amazed to find an article showing how prevalent misspellings are. And I, I think this is a, a recent article. Let me pull it up. Mm -hmm. From Turner and Eisenstein, common misspellings and their impact on health sciences literature search results. Tracy. So, yeah, this, this is a great question because... I mean, your instinct is, why would you add misspelled words to your search, right? But for some topics, I think it's really important. And there is a great thread, Twitter thread, that Janice King, I think, isn't she the librarian at in Alberta? Um, I'll have to look up the thread. This is probably from a year and a half, maybe two years ago almost. She did a great thread. Anyway, um, talking about how important it was to have misspelled words, especially when it comes to drugs, certain drug names, because they can be easily misspelled. And it's important to have some of those misspelled words, especially if it's commonly misspelled words. Inoculation, like she pointed out here, is a great one. <clears throat> um, coronavirus, and there's, you know, other ways that Things might be misspelled. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't think I'm usually in the habit, whether it's for systematic review searches or just any kind of comprehensive searches. I'm not necessarily in the habit of putting misspellings, but it can really make a difference, especially if it's something that is commonly misspelled. There are 10 results for coronavirus. Corn. It's corn. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, so <clears throat> it is a wonderful thing. It's got the juice. <laughs> Don't start. <laughs> you can take that out. Um, no, no, never. <clears throat> so you're not in the habit, but you thought it might be a good idea? I'm not in the habit, but there are certain things. And I'm trying to remember the last time I had... I actively added misspelled words and I'm, I'm blanking on it was I, it wasn't that long ago and I think it was a drug related one I sometimes add rehabilitation that gets misspelled mm -hmm. a lot so sometimes if it's a very sensitive search I'll add that and then I'll make a note because then people will peer review your search and they'll say oh you spelled this wrong yeah. and I'm like I didn't spell it wrong on purpose yeah so mm -hmm. um, that's what I would say is I do it sometimes if, it, if I see a lot of misspellings when I look but then I make a note so that somebody doesn't try to correct it. And I want to I want to make a point of saying that's not the, we're not talking necessarily about having spelling variations for like British spelling, like for using an S for hospitalization or mm. O U R for behavior, things like that. Mm -hmm. This is actively using 
wrongly spelled terms. Yeah. And that's a really good article. We'll have to link. Yeah, link I remember. That. It's, a good, it's a good read. I remember seeing that come out. Now, the next one I know is near and dear to your heart because you had recently talked to mm -hmm. me about this topic, which was, do you get involved with identifying retracted articles that may end up being included in the results of a systematic review? Or is that the job of the folks who end up reviewing the abstract? Yeah, so this is a great question to you because there's there's a couple of different approaches, right? One is that if you're using citation management software, mm -hmm. most of them now are tied into the Retraction Watch database, which Retraction Watch is now um, partnered with Crossref. Mm -hmm. And uh, this happened just in the last month or two. And I can link to some of the things that talk about it. There's a press release and there's a really good webinar that I saw that talks about the collaboration and things like that. But it's, if you're using citation management software, most of them now flag things that have been retracted. Mm -hmm. And like Zotero does it, EndNote does it, um... It will show up specifically as retracted. I've been trying to figure out, like, if it's something that should be actively done in addition to that, like looking for retracted articles after, like, near the end of a project to see if anything that was included had received a correction or been retracted after the screening had been done and everything had been done right because potentially it could impact especially if it's a retraction it could impact your conclusions and so i think even though i would suspect most of us don't do it it might be something to consider mm -hmm. especially if you're doing um a search update or any kind of last check really before submitting for publication to see if those things that have been included have any kind of expression of concern or attraction or even if it's just a correction to see what that correction might be because there's there's different levels right i if something has been corrected it should not it should not impact the conclusion of a paper right, right? it's just correcting something that was wrong and sometimes corrections could just be like, we spelled this author's name wrong, or, you know, we mislabeled this figure, and it doesn't change the conclusions anyway, we just realized the X and Y axis were switched, mm -hmm, or whatever right. it was. An expression of concern is something more concerning, right? It, it, may, it may have an impact on what you've extracted from that article, depending on what it is. And expressions of concern may eventually be retracted or may never be retracted. But I think it's, a, it's something to be aware of. And especially if you are doing a review that has a limited amount of literature that you're including, you know, anything that changes anything you've included could really have a big impact. And that includes retractions. And things are retracted because 
for lots of reasons. It could be from, you know, honest mistake down all the way through the spectrum of, you know, research malfeasance. And so, or, you know, falsified data or whatever. So if you've included something in your review that has been retracted, that is something you need to know about. And it could impact your your conclusion for your evidence synthesis, right? So I think you should look for that. I don't know that really anybody does. Yeah, I I haven't been in the business of doing that as a habit. You know, I don't say, well, let me look for retracted articles and then tell this team. But now that EndNote mm-hmm. flags them for me and mm-hmm. I can see them, I'll often like create a little bibliography of the retracted ones and let the team know, hey, these have been retracted. So mm-hmm. at least they have a heads up. But now I think a lot of databases, PubMed included platforms, are trying to make it much more clear when something has been retracted. Yeah. Because for a long time, but there's, you couldn't tell. Yeah, but there's also, even though they are making it better to see when something has been retracted, it's not always documented in a way that would be caught that something has been retracted. That's true. Right, because retraction retraction notices may be separate from the original citation. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I saw this week? An entire special issue was retracted. It was the Review of Education special issue. Whole thing. Retracted. Just pull it all. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really tough question. And like I said, I don't know that there's a lot of people that actively do it. I mean, I do know that, you know, if you're doing certain exclusions with the search, a lot of times you might exclude certain types of publication, like, you know, case reports or commentaries or editorials or things like that, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you could potentially exclude things that have been retracted, so you don't capture those. But again, it may be detached from the original citation. Right. And things get retracted, you know, at different times. Like, you could have included something that, you know, because your systematic review took you a year to do, you know, nine months in, something that you included was retracted and you just don't know about it. That's true. It could happen later. If nothing else, you should probably, anything that you've included in your review... Maybe just do a quick spot check in PubMed or somewhere to see. Yeah. Or, you know, just pull up your InNote library to see if anything new has been flagged as a retraction. Such a great idea. A lot of the teams I work with don't use EndNote. So in that case, it would be either up to me to check or up to them to, to Google that article. Or do, you know, targeted searches of retraction watch. Yeah. Good food for thought. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of... We talked about the citation management software that flags retractions, but there's other tools that do it. And it could be, you know, a browser plugin that makes it easy enough to see if something has an expression of concern or correction or anything like that. Mm-hmm. PubPeer is a, is a good Ooh. one to kind of cite does it as well. I don't know. Ooh. See, new tools, new tools every day. So many new tools. So yeah, I've been thinking about retractions a lot, actually, because I'm developing a class on retractions uh, for work. Oh. 
and that kind of I guess it's going to it was going it's going to be just a kind of introduction to retractions. Like, what are retractions? You know, how do you know if something's been retracted? Can I come? How do you find them? Yeah, but that kind of then morphed into because I work with systematic reviews and evidence synthesis products. I was like, now, well, why don't we do that? And now it's kind of morphed into this thing where now I'm thinking a lot about retractions, especially around evidence synthesis and how. Like, how would you incorporate that into a workflow? Is that something that should be part of the methodology or should it be something kind of extra? I don't know. I wonder if our guidance documents say anything about it. The last time I checked, which was maybe a month or two ago, they really don't say anything. Yeah, you're right. Cochrane doesn't really say any, uh, doesn't really mention, I mean, that, Mentions the, you know, things can be retracted, that sort of thing. But it doesn't incorporate incorporate into methodology. And as far as I remember, there was nothing in the JBI for systematic reviews or scoping that talk about it. There's something. Being part of workflow. Yeah, J- I don't think JBI does. Mm-mm. Chapter 5, Collecting Data of the, of the Cochrane Handbook. Examine any relevant retraction statements. Mm-hmm. That's about it. That's all I'm seeing. There is an increasing... Uh, chapter 4, Searching for Studies. There is an increasing awareness of the importance of not including retracted studies. So it looks like they're thinking about it. Yeah, but, but there's nothing really that says. And you should note if something has been retracted or go looking after the fact to see make sure nothing has been retracted Mm -hmm. since you've reached your conclusion or anything like that i see chapter 4.4.6 identifying fraudulent retracted errata latin yeah there's not there's not a great erratum erratum is the singular errata is the plural yeah we do not doesn't say a time corrigendum corrigenda curricula is this a latin contest Oh, corrigendum is another way of saying like a corrigendum oh. word. <laughs> Erratum. But yes, it's also Latin. <laughs> Are we just going to... Technically, Agricola Are we gonna list is Latin. Latin. Words now? Yeah, Agricola. <laughs> the la- the... It's a database. Oh, yeah. It's a oh, Latin yeah. word. It means farm. Oh, yeah, Agricola. Or farmer. Farm. Farmer, farmer. Weeny, weedy, weedy. I took four years of Latin in high school and two semesters in college. So that's great. I'm sure it helps with all of your all of your medical terminology. It really, yeah, <laughs> that was the main the main helpfulness of it. And it's funny because it helps me with grammar. Yeah, I actually like when I have been asked a grammar question, like, "Oh, is this uh, ablative or what?" You know, I was like, I, I don't know. I have to think of it in Latin. Yeah. Because I know Latin grammar better than I know probably Ooh, English grammar. So cool. You could go back to ancient Which Rome is and talk to Julius Caesar. Kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> well, so we have a couple more questions from our loving fans. The common questions, one of them we've kind of already answered. There's the, yeah. what database do you like to pester? See, I knew somebody yeah, had asked that. <laughs> I read ahead. Uh, a question I get whenever I teach anything about searching, systematic searching, is when do you stop searching? And I am sorry, I can't tell you that, mm. but you have to follow the best practices for searching, 
which is kind of what we talked about when we talked about searching systematically. And then you'll know when to stop searching. <laughs> That's tough because it's kind of like, I know I'm done when I know I'm done. Right. Did you think of all the possible synonyms? Did you do some background, you know, information searching? Did you look at MeSH? Did you look at MTree if you have it? Did you look at other controlled vocabularies? Have you done your due diligence on term harvesting? And then you're putting it all together and you're seeing what you get. That's when you can stop searching. Is it though? <laughs> I don't know. Is Do it? more work if you want to. And another question I get like all the time is should I use TW or TIAB? And my personal opinion is it doesn't matter. It's up to you. So if you do a search, I, I always start with TW, which is text word. You can look it up in the PubMed user guide. It tells, it tells you what fields are being searched. TW is pretty sensitive. Title abstract keywords, author supplied keywords, journal information, and more. And then TIAB is title abstract, but it also includes some other terms. So if you're doing a search and you want to dial it in just a little bit, try switching from TW to TIAB. But the answer is there's no right answer. And the other answer is you're the expert. It's up to you. What do you think, Tracy? Yeah, and like I, I usually, I'll go back and forth depending on the topic mm -hmm. because sometimes the, you know, I kind of default to using TIAB for systematic oh, reviews, <laughs> searches, um, because that is going to be, you know, a little more structured anyway. I'm going to be spending more time. I'm going to be testing the search. I probably have... Hopefully, some a few articles that I can validate against, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, oftentimes I will use TIAB for systematic review searches. But if it's a search just for me, or if I'm doing kind of just a quote-unquote regular lit search that needs to be comprehensive, I'll probably use TW. And but... It also depends on the on the question itself, because if it's a topic that I know may not have as much literature, I'm probably going to use TW just to to be covering all of those different fields. I don't like using all fields. No, it's a little too broad. And one of the nice things about TW is it will capture mesh terms, too. Right, right. So it's kind of like using DE and Embase because you get the mesh term but it's not exploding anything. It's just giving you, if it's a subject heading on the record, you're mm -hmm. getting it back. Including like supplemental concepts and things like that. But yeah. yeah. So sometimes I will do a search with TW and not use mesh because I know it's grabbing the mesh I want anyway. Right. And I might use TW. And again, this might be for a search for myself because it keeps the, sh the search more compact, shorter. Yeah. And another thing I don't think new searchers always realize is you can use TIAB on one word and you can use TW, and TW on, another. on another one. Yeah. So if you find mm -hmm. that one word is giving you trouble, like say you're using chest in a search, well, chest is a journal. So you'd be getting back everything from chest, the journal, and it's not relevant. You can dial that in a little bit and you can play with it term by term. It doesn't have to be across the board. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, and, and something. Something that I know has been asked before, 
you can't just search the abstract in PubMed. There's not an abstract field in PubMed like there oh, is in yeah. other databases. Right. So you could, if you're trying to search things only in an abstract I can see what you're going to say. Field, Let's hear it. You would do a search in TIAB and then not out the oh. term in TI. That's what I thought you might say. Have you done that? I have a few times, yeah. I don't think I've ever had a reason to do that. I've never done that for systematic review search. Oh, but just kind of to poke around. I call it poking around. Mm-hmm. Very scientific poking around. Well, that brings us to our final question, which, well, Carly Claire's opened the show and Carly Claire's is going to close the show because this question is also from them. If either of you could have any job that you want that wasn't librarianship and pretend that no matter what you choose, it pays enough, what would you be doing instead? I would want to be a stunt driver. (laughs) Okay, it's long story time. Why? (laughs) Like, stunt driver or like race car driver? Wait, have I? I have ridden with you. Um, You're pretty good. Oh, I'm pretty good. Okay, so if I were to ever win the lottery, like, even at my age, I would want to take, like, stunt driving classes. Yeah? Because I think it would be such a cool job to have, like... You have no fear? Just... I didn't say I didn't have any fear. I just think it would just be so much fun. Basically... To, to drive around like I'm in the Fast and Furious movies. That's what I want to do. What, I think that would... What kind of car would you drive? I, I don't know. I, any any kind, really. I just like fast cars. That's so cute. Reckless driving. I mean, that's, you know... What does your insurance, your, like, phone app say about... I, that's that. I don't care about insurance. <laughs> That's, that's not Do my you know problem. Your, like, little phone app can tell you if you're a good driver or whether you're not. Huh? Yeah, it says like I never you brake suddenly, you accelerate quickly, and you take turns hard. And you're what app is this? Toyota. What? <laughs> it's like you're a shitty driver. It critiques your driving. Yeah. <laughs> oh hell no. <laughs> no. No. Tracy no. No. Tracy is a stunt driver. I think that's a great a great thought. Have I ever told you about my Fast and Furious? No. Okay. Do not put this in the pod. Oh, man. Do really? not. Okay. I absolutely love those movies. Like, unabashedly, unashamedly love the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah. And I would give anything to drive like that. I haven't seen them. Does it have Keanu Reeves? Okay. Is it Keanu Reeves? Keanu? No, it's not <laughs> Keanu Reeves. That's John Wick. Oh. Okay, so what's your well, answer? I watch Fast and Furious. Well, I'll be honest with you. This is my favorite question, so I thought about it, and I have... You you, you, you have to watch the fifth one first. Why? It's the best? Because it's the best one. It's a heist movie. Okay. Fair. I'll do it. I'll make oh, you watch seven? it. How many are there? Nine. <sighs> Oh, my. Ten. Great. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. <laughs> well, now I'm going down a rabbit hole. 
All right. I have a couple of different stories about what I'd be. All right. One, two, three, four, nine, ten. There's, um, so I, I, I like John Wick. Like John Wick. Okay. Who is Keanu Reeves? There's four of those movies. Ask me how I know. <laughs> well, there's worse guilty pleasures. Anyway, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. There's just pleasure. Well, I would. So I wanted to tell. So when I was a kid, I was really into these Zilpha Keatley Snyder books, The Egypt Game. Did you ever hear of her? Did read the? No. So The Egypt Game kind of like was like a kid's introduction to Egyptology. It was very cute. And then I remember because I was so into that book that in fifth grade when we had career day, I took a shovel because I wanted to be an archaeologist. And then, um, but of course, that didn't last very long. So, well, so when I was just wrapping up my college years is when I hurt myself and ended up in physical therapy. And I had such a great therapist who asked me to work at the clinic. So that ended up being my job for a couple of years as a PT tech. And I always thought, gosh, like, I loved it so much, but I felt like it was too late to go into physical therapy. So, but now I would tell myself. It wasn't too late. I could have done it because all I had to do was take some prereqs and change majors, but I didn't do that. I have to say I'm quite happy with where I've ended up. I like this job and the autonomy it affords me and the work-life balance and all that. But I'll, I'll, I'll say one more thing, which is I just watched this really silly movie on Netflix called 3,000 Years of Longing. It had Tilda Swinton. It had Idris Elba. It was great. But it was about finding a genie in a bottle and getting those three wishes. And I, I was like, what would my wishes be? And I have always wanted to be able to sing. I cannot sing. And I think that would be my, my biggest wish is to sing. Like a famous singer? Yeah. There you like go. Like T-Swift. Only better. <gasps> <laughs> so archaeologist, physical therapist. Singer, ultimately librarian. Yeah, that's mine. You have better answers. I like stunt driver. Apparently, I live in the movies. Either, either the Fast and Furious franchise or the John Wick franchise. <laughs> None of which I have seen, so I can't do a pop culture chat with you. But I wish I could. Sorry, I'm always really envious of those people who can do like pop culture talk. I'm not. A- how can I be cooler, Tracy? I, I don't know why you're asking me. Because I'm like, watch more TikToks. I don't know. That wraps up episode 12. Ask us anything. AUA. Medlib's miscellany. And we hope you'll keep those questions coming. Remember that you can reach us on medlibsmiscellany at gmail.com. On Twitter at medlibs underscore miss. On Instagram at medlibs underscore miss. And on Blue Sky. Tracy, you're not helping me out here, man. I don't know them. I'm trying. On Blue Sky at medlibsmiscellany.bsky.social. Follow us there. Keep those questions coming. Thank you for your support, for listening as we approach our almost one year anniversary. See you next time. Bye. This podcast was hosted by Carrie Price and Tracy Shields, edited by Carrie Price, with show notes by Tracy Shields.